Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here's your host, editor Christian Berg. All right, welcome back to the Bow Hunting Podcast. We appreciate you, and this week I've got my good, good, great friend, Mr. Timothy Kent from Phoenix Branding. How are you, my friend? I'm great, man. I'm, I'm just here to. I'm, I'm just here to pump Phoenix branding. Nobody knows what Phoenix branding is. <laughs> That's all right. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be the companies that we work for that shine. So absolutely, I did want to throw that out there because it is a little bit of behind the scenes almost in the industry. Tim, Tim is a, a marketing and public relations guru, and he works with a lot of companies uh, that you would be familiar with, most notably uh, and and by far, I'm sure your biggest client is Ferradine Outdoors. So. It's everything from Rage and Muzzy to um, block targets. And, no, not block targets. Yeah. Yeah, block targets. Yeah, block uh, targets, Carbon Express. We just purchased Scent Crusher, so covert scouting cameras. We've got quite the portfolio, about 20 brands. And, uh, you know, it's a great company to work with, and I, I love their relationship, and I feel grateful that I, I get to actually continue to work in the archery and hunting industry. Yep. So, so that's a little bit about Tim, but we're not gonna we're not gonna bore you with uh, a bunch of talk about all Ferdine's fine family of products this week. Well, I actually reached out to Tim because we've been friends for a long time. We've done some hunting together over the years, and I wanted to talk with Tim about some DIY antelope hunting because uh, we are here you know, getting towards the latter part of July. And it won't be, it won't be very long at all that pronghorn seasons will be opening up uh, throughout the West. And Tim and I enjoyed a really fun and successful uh, antelope hunt together a, a few years back in Eastern Montana. But there's a lot of opportunity out there, Tim, for people. If, you know, I think that the average Eastern person, which you and I both are, right? You live in New York. I live in Pennsylvania. We both have lots of friends, you know, here at home who are bow hunters. I mean, 99% of all these guys and gals, they're, they're never going to go pronghorn hunting, but they really should. Yeah, that's the shame of it, right? It's, uh, it's like an extension on your season, which sometimes doesn't make the wife happy because, you know, it sort of can inf infringe on end of summer activities and family vacations and whatever else. But a lot of these antelope seasons start for archery August 15th. So you can get going pretty early and you can punch in a, a week of hunting out West. And it's like, it's like a whole jump start on your year. You can, get, you can have some fun, get your skills sharpened, stalking, get your skills sharpened, shooting, get your skills sharpened, just moving through the woods or e-scouting or doing any of those things. And you get that early opportunity at what I think is one of the most fun and interactive game animals to hunt. And uh, I, I just, I love them. And the more I hunt them, the more I like them. Now, if you talk to me three days after I get home from an antelope hunt or in the middle of it, I may have a different answer and I'll tell you how frustrating they are and how, how good their eyesight is or how I should have scouted differently or done spot and stock instead of sitting over a water hole or whatever. But, you know, that's, I think that's always part of the adventure is the, the, the trials and tribulations are really what makes it when it comes together, like our hunt did makes it the best. Yeah. And you know, the thing is, um, you mentioned a few things there. Okay. The pronghorn is just a unique animal, you know, and we, they're called pronghorn antelope, but they're not even really a true antelope. And if you look up the science on these things, they have no relatives whatsoever. You know, it's not like deer, right? Where you had deer, elk, moose, caribou, all in the same family, right? The, the pronghorn is kind of like its own deal. And I think even back, uh, I'm a bit of a history buff. And, you know, I think back to the Lewis and Clark expedition. That's something in our history of our country that I find fascinating. Think about those explorers, you know, heading across. They, 
you know, logged all these things. They came upon those pronghorns, you know. Can you imagine being the first, like, white man to see a, a pronghorn antelope and be like, what are these crazy things? And to realize how fast they can run, you know, the fastest, you know, like, land animal going and everything. They're really, really neat. And their their coats, you know, are, the coloring is beautiful. Their, their horns are unlike anything. And as an added bonus, you had just mentioned this to me the other day when we were talking when you're from the east it's really cool because if you go out west and you shoot any pronghorn at all and you get that mounted and put it on your wall like everybody who comes into your house will be like oh wow you got a pronghorn and that's awesome and you can be like yeah that's a really big one and they'll believe you because they don't know because they've never seen one yeah 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 <laughs> the people that are aficionados they'll come in and they'll be like oh what's that one like 65 or whatever and and they'll know but you know you talk to our friend jace bowserman he'll come in he'll judge the thing to a half an inch right you know but the vast majority of of the remainder of our friends they'll come in like oh that that's cool that's a real pretty one yeah it looks great i love how dark its horns are and that's one of the things that i like about them is you know you you don't get sort of as wrapped up in the trophy thing i mean certainly there are smaller ones like we had encounters with a few while we were out there that had pretty small horns. They were pretty young bucks, but like it was, it was still fun to go and take a stab at those and, uh, uh, you know, have the overall experience. But I think the other thing to not discount about them, I, I know there's mixed reviews on antelope meat, pronghorn meat, but I think our, it's one of our favorites. I mean, it's, it's really good as long as you can kind of get it processed pretty quickly and, that's exactly what we did with ours. And I think we're actually having pronghorn burgers for dinner tonight. So oh, I'll be timing. right up. If yeah, I leave, yeah, if on. I leave now, I could just about make it. Yeah. Oh no, you'll be here in plenty of time. Okay. That sounds good. Uh, we got to move fast on this podcast then. Um, the other thing, okay, so you got the, the animals are unique. The other thing that, again, you know, I'm looking at this from our perspective as Easterners, but I mean, heck, even if you live out west, unless you're right on the prairie, if you live up in the mountains where there's lots of trees, I mean, the habitat that these animals uh, inhabit is also really different. It's a chance, like you say, not only to start your season early, but to experience an incredible landscape, you know, and it... Even in areas where it's wide open, you know, there's usually at least some topography. You've got some some hills. Uh, you've got a lot of um, ditches, you know, like creek beds, river beds, uh, which tend to be not always particularly uh, filled with water during antelope season. It's usually pretty hot and dry. Um, but, you know, and then the other neat thing about that terrain is you can see a lot of animals. You know, if you think about whitetail hunting, which is the bread and butter in our part of the world, you could be sitting in a tree stand in the forest. You could have a 50 deer within 100 yards of you and never see any of them. Out there in antelope country, it's the opposite. And it kind of almost comes to your comment about frustration because you might go out and see 200 antelope a day and never even come close to getting a shot at any of them. The other interesting thing about that, the, the diversity in the terrain, like you're detailing, but from year to year, obviously, like, like this year, it's my understanding in a lot of the Western states, they're getting considerable amounts of moisture. So the grasses are really, really tall, which bodes really well. The year that we went out, if you remember, we had pretty good grasses that year and it had rained a, a pretty good amount right before we got there and while we were there too, which added to the challenge. But when those grasses are taller, it gives you a lot more opportunities to sneak and stalk and do those things. But if you get into years where it's really dry, I, I believe it was last year and the year before were really dry out there. You may only have, you know, kind of stubbly grass. It's only a few inches tall, it totally changes the dynamic and the opportunities that you have at scouting those animals. So you have to be that much more dialed in with how you're utilizing the train, how you're presenting your stalks, how you're coming in on those animals, and then what your strategy is each time. I think. I think you and I added it up after that last hunt and it was like 10 to 12 stocks per shot opportunity or something like that. And, you know, when you kind of put that into context, that's pretty cool that you can have that much, that much opportunity on a hunt because you go on an elk hunt or a mule deer hunt or a whitetail hunt. I mean, 
you know, it's not really that often that you have that many opportunities to at least go and make, make a play on an animal. And that's, for me, that's just one of the most fun things about antelope hunting. And, you know, in a four or five day hunt, which again is rather short compared to some of the other species that you chase, you can get a lot of action and a lot of adrenaline rolling. And that's, that's the best. I mean, you know, going back to, to our hunt <clears throat> that particular year was, was wet. So we, we started out sitting water holes. We had set up a couple of blinds and then we really realized pretty quickly that the goats weren't going to come in. They had, they had too many options for water. So we immediately transitioned to spot and stock after the first day. And I don't even think we got through a full day. Actually, I think that that first evening we, we kind of banged out and we, we burned a lot of road miles. We spent a lot of money in gas, but we had tons of encounters with animals and we were finding them in places all over on, on different, we were taking advantage of the block management program, of course. And uh, we were finding them on, on farms that we had, you know, signed into on block management and then on other pieces of public and, and private, we, we got permission on a private piece. And, you know, it seemed like not everywhere we went, we ran into antelope, but they were in abundance in a lot of places. And because of the way the road systems are, we could just stop and glass and then figure out a strategy and make a play and go into the, one of those 10 to 12 stocks per shot opportunity. And, you know, between the two of us, we had a, we had a fair amount of shot opportunities and some of them were stretching the distance a little bit, but it was awesome, you know, and, and the nice part is you get to interact with whoever you're partnered with on a, on a hunt. Whereas, you know, you do a river bottom whitetail hunt, let's say in Montana, you're in solidarity most of the time and you're on your own and you have your own thoughts, which is great, but we have that in October and November and December to, to, you know, be able to interact and do something with, with one of your friends and enjoy it. I mean, I'm, I'm really bullish on the idea of getting out there and just enjoying the, the, the holistic experience and what it has to present. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I'm slinking back to those stocks and stuff. And I'm like, oh, I think I had a, a couple of misses before, you know, I finally killed my goat. And uh, like you said, they were you know, some longer pokes, you know, I mean, I think I, I killed it 55. And, and I think the other opportunities were you know, 70, maybe a little over 70. And and uh, that's not an easy shot to make any time. And especially if you've been trying to crawl a little bit or, or move and, and, and you're a little bit, you know, winded or your adrenaline's going. But, uh, but, you know, like you said, it's fun. And you have your buddy there with you to encourage you or to mock you or whatever <laughs> is most in order for the moment. Um, you know, the social aspect is great. You don't get bored because you're either stalking antelope or looking for antelope or driving around to try and find a new area to, to look for antelope and stalk antelope. And I'll tell you what, the other great thing, as opposed to a deer hunt or an elk hunt, you know, your prime conditions for your antelope hunt aren't necessarily early and late in the day. You can, you can really hunt them all day because they're just out there grazing or they'll lay down, you know, different times, take a rest for a while. But I mean, they're out there, they're visible, right? Uh, out there in the open country. And you could sleep in easily until 7.30, 8 o'clock if you wanted to uh, head out, you know, 8, 8.30, even 9 o'clock. You could hunt, uh, you know, most of the day and, and still be back to camp or wherever you're staying at a reasonable hour. And uh, I mean, that's kind of nice as well. Yeah, for sure. And we definitely did that. I don't think we ever slept in until 7.30, but we were getting up 5.30, 6, and we were never really in a rush. And we still had an opportunity to get out most times, you know, close to daylight and, and you know, make plays on animals. And our I think all of our best opportunities actually happen during, you know, high sun most of the time. And, uh, you know, the, the neat thing about those antelope too is they almost seem to glow on the out in the prairie, like just the way the sun hits their, their fur and stuff. It just, they just take, they just take on this aura around them. So it's, it's pretty cool. And most of the time, that time of year, they're sort of grouped up and that's blessing and a challenge at the same time. We had several situations where we got picked off by multiple sets of eyes or 
there was a, another smaller group off of the main group that was in a different area that we couldn't see due to the topography and they got the best of us and boogered up the whole thing. But again, back to the frustration is also what equals the fun, especially when it all comes together in the end. And, um, you know, but I also look at it as this Western hunting in general, whether it's elk or mule deer is getting a little bit trickier to get tags. And as a result, you know, I, I, I believe more people are going to start looking to animals like pronghorn antelope to go and at least have that Western experience, especially guys from the East. And I think that's evident in some of even this year's draws I put in for that same Montana tag that we put in for a few years back. I've put in for that tag, I think four or five times I've drawn it every time I didn't draw this year. It's first time, you know, and that was on very, very high draw odds. And I talked to a number of other people, including the guys that I was supposed to go with. No, nobody I know drew. So I don't know if there was a, a cutback on those tags or whatever else, but, you know, further to my point, it's just another sort of Western experience that people can get. And maybe it's their, their first introduction to the West and then they scale up from there, or it's just a way to offset the difficulty with some of these other tags. And, you know, you can still get, uh, over the counter tags in, in a few States and have great hunting. Um, you know, I just elected to use the time to, fill my family's cup and focus a little bit more on elk instead and you know default to going again next year but um you know i, I just i love the west i i would live there if i didn't have roots here and everything else and businesses and whatever but you know it's uh it's just a, it's just a fun opportunity but next well, year you know let's let's dive into some of the nuts and bolts and i think you know starting with some states is a good place to start because you know, pronghorns inhabit a, a pretty big range, actually, if you think about uh, our country. I mean, you're really going to start, you know, Kansas, Oklahoma, uh, and then obviously you head west from there and, and you're going to, you got Colorado, uh, North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, Montana, Wyoming. Uh, I'm sure there are some goats in Idaho, uh, certainly Arizona, New Mexico, I think even into Texas, Calif Texas yeah, West Texas, California. Um, I mean, we tend to focus, you know, I think Wyoming gets the most, Wyoming has the, I think the biggest herd and probably the best density and stuff and gets most of the play uh, in, in outdoor media and then South Dakota and Montana uh, probably come next. Um, but, but there's an awful lot of opportunity out there to hunt pronghorns. And for a lot of people, depending on where you live, it's not that far really from, from where you are. I mean, unless you're back East here, but if you're anywhere in it from the, the Mississippi river, you know, West in our country, pronghorns are not that inaccessible to you. And like you said, uh, there's over the counter tags available in various states and units, and even the limited entry tags, unless you're talking about like a few units in like Arizona and New Mexico come to mind that I know there are some, some units in those states where it takes a long time to draw. Most of your hunting is not more than a, a point or two to draw these tags. Yeah, and there's still over-the-counter opportunities in some states too, and that South Dakota and Colorado, and that definitely so if you you decide last minute you have a little bit of time and a little bit of extra money you can pick up and go and and take advantage of it you don't necessarily even need to draw a tag you can do it last minute maybe it's just just a an idea that pops in after you listen to a podcast like this one or you know you haven't drawn some of the other tags that you were trying to get somewhere or again you have some free time and there's there's still opportunities you're not the door is not shut well, you can have success. That's I think that's the more important thing. And kind of back to what we had talked about too. You may shoot a goat that in some people's minds is a little bit smaller, but who cares, man? You had a good time. You went out there. You, you know, you had a good hunt. You had fun. Well, if you've never if you've never shot any pronghorn before, that's the other great thing about it. You know, it's like again, I come back to whitetail hunting. That's what you and I do more of than anything else. Once you've shot a handful of smaller bucks, you don't necessarily want to keep shooting smaller bucks, you know. But if you've never hunted pronghorns, 
why wouldn't you shoot the first you know goat that you have an opportunity to do it's like exciting and you know it's good meat and it's a great memory and it's an incredible experience the other thing a couple of more things okay the, the tag costs don't tend to be as high on these pronghorns you're looking from anywhere from maybe two to five hundred dollars you know probably probably that high two to low three is going to be your most common which it's not nothing you know but if you look at what elk tags are costing in a lot of these western states nowadays i mean i drew a montana elk tag this year it cost me i think 11 or 1200 dollars for that i mean big game combo tag so i do have a, a deer tag too but i mean that's a lot of money just for a license a pronghorn license in montana is going to cost you a fraction of that and the other thing and you kind of alluded to it earlier tim when you talked about all these antelope that we were able to get into you know if you look at public land for other species, for elk, mule deer, whitetails. The best habitat for those species doesn't tend to be on public ground a lot of times. It's not that there aren't areas of public ground where there, there is really good habitat and you can't get into animals, you can. But by and large, the very best, like if you just asked your average bow hunter, hey, if you could hunt anywhere, for these elk or deer, would you like hunt this public parcel or would you go on that private ranch over there? And I think most of the guys would be like, I'd rather be on the private. Antelope, because they occupy what would probably be considered by humans to be less desirable ground, right? This, this sort of flat to rolling, empty grassland, boy, do, a lot of antelope live on the public land out there. These big BLM parcels, uh, pieces of state ground, um, and then those block management ranches that you talked about and other states have similar public access programs. There's just no shortage of antelope opportunity on public land. And I would say, you know, in my mind, the, the public land opportunity for antelope is much more abundant and much more accessible and you're much less likely to run into like a horde of pressure it's not that you won't see other hunters out there but you know if there's a known hot spot on public land for elk you might have 50 cars at the trailhead you know what i mean whereas antelope they're so spread out there's so many goats on various pieces of public land within a given area that you can easily, if there's a couple groups of people hunting here, you can easily drive 10 miles up the road to another piece of public and find plenty of antelope to, to hunt that nobody is bothering. Yeah, and that's exactly what we did. You know, we, we ran into people in a few places or we had done some e-scouting and we thought these certain ranches in the black block management program were going to be great. And then we got there and it wasn't exactly what we anticipated or there was too much water. Um, you know, there was a number of reasons what that, that kept us mobile, but because you're, you're hunting on a tag that's good in multiple units, the tag that we had, um, or just the, the full square mileage that you could hit. I mean, we just, we had so much room to roam and we always just had another plan. And then, there was a couple of spots where we drove in and it was just us on the road. And next thing you know, there were three trucks behind us that were out cruising, doing the same thing, trying to decoy them or whatever. But, um, but all by and large, we didn't, we didn't run into a lot of people, uh, just a few, few people on more of the widely used roads. But when you get, got a little bit further off the beaten path, it was just, it was just us. And there's, there were plenty of places where there weren't antelope and you would know even just looking at the habitat once once you got to you know a, a sign-in spot for block management or just a piece of blm you could just look at it and be like yeah there's going to be no goats here there's there's just not it's the wrong terrain and then you just keep moving on and you go on to the next one and i mean that really worked out well for us and you know in the process we got to view a lot of other wildlife too we got to see a lot of whitetails and some mule deer bunch of geese and a, and a bunch of cut agricultural fields so you know that was pretty cool i think we saw some some uh hungarian partridge while we were there you know kind of out and about and then some uh sage grouse i mean so it was it was cool from the standpoint of seeing other wildlife as well and you know i, I just i i feel like it's not as intense of a hunt going back to your thing about sleeping in and, and i think sometimes we need that offset because Whitetail hunting, especially if we're 
on a timeline during the rut or whatever, there can be a lot of downtime, but it can be intense, you know, just kind of day after day sitting in a tree stand doing our thing. And, you know, you get to something like this. So it can be a little bit more laid back and a little bit more fun overall. Oh yeah. You could, I mean, you could just, you could run into town and, and grab lunch and just take a break for a couple hours or take a nap uh, or, or whatever. And, you know, another thing that came to my mind as you were talking, because we were talking about all the public land opportunity, um, you had mentioned earlier, you know, we ended up getting permission by by chance, which was kind of a funny story, by basically pissing off a rancher. And I, I almost had like this guy punch me in the head, I think. Um, but then somehow, some way, I smooth talked our way and we ended up getting permission to hunt and, and we both ended up killing our goats on this property. But I just think it's more likely that if you do happen to meet a private landowner, I think it's like getting permission for uh, the Eastern equivalent would be like getting permission to hunt like coyotes or squirrels on somebody's <laughs> farm versus or groundhogs, right? Uh, versus like, can I hunt deer here? Because they may say, well, no, you can't hunt deer because, you know, our family hunts deer here. But if you want to hunt squirrels or doves or, or groundhogs or whatever, that's okay. And I think it's out west, you know, if you ask somebody, can I hunt mule deer or can I hunt elk on your property? They might say, well, again, you know, that's something that we do and, and we'd rather have you not. But, you know, antelope, you know, that, that's not quite as high on the, the pecking order. If you want to go in here and hunt antelope, you know, have at it. And if you're from out of town, you know, like this guy knew, OK, you got a guy from PA and another guy from New York. They're not going to be here during deer season. You know what I mean? They're going to be long gone. So if I let these guys hunt antelope for a few days here on my ranch, it's not like it's going to be that big of a deal. So that's a nice bonus, too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. I mean, there, there are some places where people are definitely protective of antelope because they're either, you know, leasing out their ground for them or they're charging hunters to come on or maybe they work with an outfitter or whatever else. But, you know, from other folks that I've spoken to, it's sort of it's sort of a species that are like, go in and shoot them all. You know, they're they're eating up my whatever, my alfalfa and, you know, how much antelope or how much damage can a few antelope do? I, I don't know. I don't have context for that. But yes, definitely seems to be quite a bit easier to get permission on private for them. By well, if you have if you have 50 to 100 head of antelope that are really key in on, a say, a alfalfa field, you know, even if it's a even if it's a 500 acre alfalfa field. I bet you they can eat a lot of tonnage. You know what I mean? Yeah. Those those farmers are are figuring it based on you know I'm sure how many tons or how many bales you know that they get off of a cutting, and and I would say, I mean I can only again it's funny because I was just talking to a, a a farmer here like right ten minutes from my house the other day he was talking about these three alfalfa fields he has and whitetails and like the one right up above his barn he was telling me you know, how many bales he got off of that one. And then there's one up on the hill surrounded by woods where he got less. And then there's a third one that's a little further in the cover. And he's like, I didn't even get anything off of that because of all the deer. So I'm, yeah. I'm sure that they definitely, you know, take a toll. Um, now let's talk a little bit now shifting into strategy. And again, you touched on it some, but your, your strategy for antelope, is going to vary depending on the time of the season that you go and also the weather conditions. So uh, like you had mentioned, in a really dry year, okay, you're not going to have as much grass, not as much cover. It's going to make the spot and stock more difficult. It's also going to mean that water is probably pretty scarce. And so you're going to probably spend a lot of your first you know, day to day and a half or so uh, following up on your remote scouting, right? You're going to try and identify some water holes and other water sources, you know, stock tanks and things like that in advance. Follow up on those. Hopefully, if it's really dry, you find two or three spots that seem like they're getting a lot of antelope activity. You're probably setting up a blind and, you know, parking your ass in there for a long sit and hoping to get a shot that way. Yep, for sure. I mean, I think one of the things that you can do from afar is, you know, jump onto an e-scouting program. You know, I, I use HuntStand, take a look at the terrain, 
take a look at where there's water tanks or water holes or little ponds and that type of thing and do your best to identify where water is and then you know again take a look at the terrain and the topography and see you know where there might be opportunities to spot and stalk if it is a wet year or if you get rain just before you go because i mean a puddle the size of the top of a of a of a pot that you would use for cooking on your stove could supply an antelope water for a, a day or two you know and, and it's just there's when you think about it, there's all those teeny tiny little potholes out on the prairie if you get rain for two days right before you go they could all be full so you need to have a plan in order to spot and stock so back to what you mentioned earlier you want to look for those little cuts and drainages and coolies because those are all opportunities and then from there you really need to let your glass do the work but you need to be able to identify different areas that before you get there that that might potentially hold goats and you know get you a little bit further away from roads or get you onto roads that are a little bit less used by comparison to some of these main roads because the main roads definitely especially if they're paved and they have cell phone service they definitely see quite a bit more activity by comparison which we definitely experience at the same time those water holes also see more activity. So um, one of the first antelope hunts I ever did, uh, there was a there was actually a, a pivot, you know, that they use for irrigation on an alfalfa field, and that pivot was leaking, and it it just created a, a water source inside of that alfalfa field. Those goats wouldn't even leave that alfalfa field. Essentially, you know, you just you just saw them hanging out there all the time because they had their food, they had their water and they didn't need to go anywhere. It's not like they need cover the same, or at least in my experience, the same as some of the other animals that we hunt. So they just were chilling in the sun, doing their thing and they were essentially invincible. So, you know, if you're able to set up a blind at night and sneak in there or sleep in there or do whatever that can work really, really well if you have a scenario like that, but it's just an example of how, you don't you don't know what you might encounter in that that boots on the ground time of field when you get to a spot is really helpful as well. You can't just e-scout. Uh, in my experience, you can't just e-scout and 100% you know rely on that because I, I maybe I stink at e-scouting. I don't know, but I feel like you know if I if I select five or six spots, probably 50% of them are actually going to be what I thought they were in my mind, you know, or, or they're going to turn. Oh out. yeah. Well, it, it, you have to be adaptable. Cause like you said, you know, the weather can change quickly. Um, and I think one of the hardest things on an antelope hunt is the early part of the season. Typically, uh, you know, I've changed my thought process on even planning antelope hunts since I first, you know, hunted them like 10, 15 years ago. Um, I, I wouldn't even do, if you have flexibility and you're planning your hunt, if it's really been a dry year, then I would focus on opening day in those first couple of weeks. And I would definitely focus on trying to find the, the preferred water sources in the area and just putting hours in the blind. But if it's been a wet year, this is like what we experienced on our hunt. I experienced on a DIY hunt I did in South Dakota. Um, you get there early in the season, which is way in advance of the rut, which is basically going to come in for these antelope later in September into October. Um, they're not coming to the water reliably. So that's kind of a, either out completely or pretty low odds. You know, you may end up sitting days and days in a blind and never get an opportunity. So you switch to this spot and stock. But to your point, you had mentioned earlier, they're still in pretty, pretty good groups generally at that time of year. Uh, and they're not doing much. There's no rut. The, the bucks are not aggressive, really. Um, and decoying, which is going to be really effective in the rut, isn't necessarily going to be all that effective for the most part, although you and I lucked out, you know, on my goat in particular, I was able to decoy, but that was a lone, a lone goat by himself. And I think he was just curious. Um, it wasn't an aggression trigger by any means where during the rut, you know, those, those bucks will be wanting to chase an intruder out of the area to protect their harem. It wasn't anything like that. So anyway, where I'm going with all this is if you're left, 
you get there for opening day, you think you're going to set water and the water isn't working. Now, all of a sudden, you're trying to belly crawl and slither through the grass and try to get within bow range of these groups of antelope that have literally eyes that are like 10x binoculars. And it ain't easy because two things, there are two things, and I'll let you take it to talk about these two things. But one is generally before you get to all the way where you want to be, you're going to run out of cover, both in the form of topography or grass or whatever. You just, you might be sneaking along like a, a, a dry creek bed, but then at some point you get to 200 yards from the goats and there's nothing else to conceal you. And, and the other thing is these, these goats have what I'll call like a buffer zone where they'll tolerate you moving towards them to a certain distance. And then once you sort of get to the edge of that bubble, uh, they're going to start to pay attention to what you're doing. And if you continue to press, eventually you're going to flip the switch and they're going to go. And when they go over the next hill, you can pretty much just forget about that and go find another group of antelope because you ain't getting on them today. Yeah. And they're going at like, you know, 40, 50 miles an hour, right? <laughs> you know, see ya. We're done. Um, yeah, for sure. That's, that's where the decoying side, I think, becomes really helpful when you run out of cover is now you can use your decoy as cover. If, even, even if it's not at a time of year where they're being aggressive toward the decoy, you can do that. I know guys that have, that have done this where they actually use horses and they use the horse and they'll sneak behind or mules and they'll sneak behind the horses and mules because the, the goats are used to seeing it and they can't count legs. So they don't know that that horse all of a sudden has six legs or whatever, right. Or eight or whatever. So, you know, you know, and, and they'll use them as like a shield and move along and there's cow decoys and other antelope decoys and whatever else that, you know, I think a lot of guys use it like thinking they're going to decoy the goats in, but it's just an opportunity for, for you to create your own cover between you so you can close that distance and then, you know, sort of get inside that bubble that you're talking about with, with a little bit more safety. Uh, would it cut down on the number of stocks per shot opportunity? Yes, but it also depends upon the animal like anything else. I mean, they all have their own sensitivities. Um, you know, we, we decoyed a little bit while we were there. I think the other thing that you have to take into consideration when you do run out of cover, which we had happened to us, I can think of one instance in particular, they just had a little bit of a height advantage. It may have only been uh, two or three or four feet total, but at, with that, with you being on the ground and then, you know, we were, if I remember right, we were like crawling and then belly crawling, which stinks if you're in cactus country or anything like that, which we were on this particular stock. And then we kind of got up to this fence line and that way we were stuck and they have a height advantage and you're stuck. That's another time where if you kind of have the chance to pop up a decoy and, and use that to help you, because we were in bow range or pretty darn close at that point. And we just, we, like I said, we were just stuck and couldn't, we couldn't do anything, but, uh, you, that's just another learning opportunity. You, you evaluate where, what your plan is beforehand, but the best laid plans obviously, you know, can go awry. And we thought we had that one slam dunk. I mean, we, the first day we were there, it was even before this, I think it was two days before the season, we had scouted out that spot and we're like, Oh man, if these goats get to right here, we're going to be able to kill them. And then we went up in there one day and sure enough, they were there. We're like, Oh yeah, this is going to happen. This is the one, you know, oh, I, I know exactly the spot that you're talking about. I think it was yeah. over here on uh, uh sheep mountain road, I think. Yeah. Um, but uh, it seems like it's pretty easy to get to about a hundred yards on these yeah. things. And then you're repeat like I feel like we were repeatedly at that point where we're like about a hundred yards, so it's a little too far for a shot, at least for us. I think for you know, the vast majority of bow hunters, and so you're wanting to get you know another 30, 40 yards if you can, and you're kind of pinned down, and you're like, 
what do we do now? And, you know, and do you just wait? Like we weren't, I mean, I'm not the most patient person by any means. And I mean, you could always like just wait and see if they eventually mosey over, which, which they could, but that's a waiting game too. I, I tend to probably be a bit too impulsive and try to make something happen. But I uh, uh, will say, you mentioned the cactus. I, I would highly recommend uh, a good set of knee pads for a DIY antelope hunt. And, and I have a, a pair that have like a, a hard shell on the outside, which I really like for that kind of terrain because it, it'll keep all that prickly pear out of your knees because you try to remember like every time you put a hand or a foot or a knee or an elbow down in this country, you kind of got to look. But I guarantee over the course of your hunt, you're going to get focused on those antelope and what you're doing. And it's never, never fails. It's going to happen multiple times throughout the week. You're going to put a limb down on the ground and it's not going to feel good. Yeah. I mean, I started that trip out without knee pads. I, you know, my, my pants have the ability to put knee pads in them. And I, I remember starting out not having knee pads in, and then I put, and I, you know, I was getting cactus in my knees and then, I, then I put them in and the cactus was still going through the pads that I had. Cause they're just the foam type of pads and not as bad, but it was, was a little bit torturous. And then I was wearing, you know, kind of like weather leather work gloves while we were doing it. But even, even that certain times was poking through and, you know, inconveniences more than anything else, but just things to take into consideration. You know, some guys run snake boots, some guys don't. I, I was when we started our hunt and then, and then some of that was to guard against the cactus too. Um, I learned that in Texas really. And then, and then I stopped wearing them. And then we, then we encountered a rattlesnake and I was like, okay, snake boots are going back on. <laughs> you know, so. Well, the thing is, I mean, why don't you want to wear them is because they get so darn hot. hot. You know, it is hot that time of year out there, but yeah, yeah, it's, uh, all right. Glad you have them if you need them. Thankfully you didn't need them, but we did see a pretty, pretty nice rattler while we we're out there. You got some awesome pictures of that thing, man. Yeah. Yeah. And we saw a few, few that came to their demise on the roads too. Other, other considerations, you know, again, we talk, we're talking about some equipment, knee pads, obviously is not something I normally have for a whitetail hunt. Um, the nice thing about pronghorns is any bow setup that you have for pretty much anything will, will be fine. Um, you know, if you'll be shooting potentially a little bit farther, so you should definitely be prepared. I'd say for at least a 60 yard shot, nobody should go on an antelope bow hunt if they're not prepared to at least maybe shoot 60. Um, you know, some guys think about going to lighter arrows. It will flatten your trajectory a little bit. But to be honest with you, I didn't really switch up uh, for any of my antelope hunts. I've just shot my whitetail stuff. Um, you mentioned it earlier. Good glass is the biggest thing. I, I would like to have some 10x binoculars for sure. Don't go out there without at least 10 power binoculars and a spotting scope is a good idea if you, you know, you find a group of, of antelope and, you know, there are some, some bucks in there. You want to get a better look and see if it's one that you really want to go after. Um, you know, it's great to keep a spotting scope, at least in your vehicle, you know, even if you're not going to carry it around with you everywhere. Yeah, to, further to both of those points as far as the shooting side is concerned, I think, you know, where you find you need to stretch the distance, we're sort of referencing spot and stock hunting here. If you're hunting a water hole, I mean, you have a bit more control over that, you know, but again, as we touched on earlier, that's not always an option. Um, but as it pertains to binoculars and spotting scopes and glass, I mean, I, I'm just a big proponent of the spotting scope because it helps you look at a lot of terrain. Like you said, you know, you can identify an animal that you want to shoot, but sometimes, you know, you're so far away. You could be, you could be a half a mile, a mile, maybe even more, you know, just even identifying if, if an antelope is a buck or a doe at that distance, you kind of need a spotter to help you do that. And then, you know, and then go and work your way in on them. I mean, there were, there were definitely several stocks that we did where we, we glass goats up from the road, um, you know, use the spotting scope to do that. And then, you know, knew that there were bucks in the groups and then, you know, and then went after them. And then there was, if I remember right, we had one group that we went after, it was over a mile back from the road that we had a, that we had to go and 
frogger our way through an alfalfa field, <laughs> you know, so that had round bales in it. But, um, you know, I don't think if it were just regular 10 X binos, I would have had the eyes to, to really identify whether or not there were bucks. I mean, it stands to reason that you could think, but you'd hate to go and burn up a bunch of time doing a stock to only realize that, you know, there wasn't what you were looking for in that group and then have to work your way back. And then you've put pressure on those animals for a later date too. That's the other thing. Like one of the things that I feel like we experienced is when we bumped something, it was very rare that we would go in, you know, a day or two later and they'd be in the same spot. They, they kind of were like most other animals. They kind of vacated the area for a bit and had to move on. So. Yeah. Yeah. You can definitely blow out your antelope country, just like you can blow out anything else. Now, as far as other considerations for shooting these things, I mean, I guess antelope are pretty, they're really, really quite thin skinned, to be honest with you. Um, their, their bodies are almost like a, they're like the bird of like the deer sized game world. You know what I mean? It's like, like, you know how birds have hollow bones and I'm sure that they're not hollow on the antelope, but they're just more slightly built than even a white tail. Um, if you hit an antelope, like anywhere halfway decent, your odds of recovering that animal are pretty high because, you know, obviously if you make a, a really good hit, they're going to die fairly quick. And even if you make a bit of a marginal hit, it's not like a deer country where they're, you're in the middle of these thick woods and the, the animal runs off and hides and you can't find the darn thing. Antelope you know, they live in open country. And so your odds of at least being able to see where that animal goes, keep an eye on it, give it some time and then search in that area to either recover the animal or get a follow up shot uh, are pretty good. And I prefer, you know, myself, a mechanical head like the Rage for uh, antelope, because, again, their their skin's pretty thin and uh, a mechanical tends to open up a pretty big hole in those animals. And uh, usually have a pretty short tracking job if you if you hit them right. Yeah, so like you, back to t your bow comment and your and arrows and your overall setup. I I kind of try and just have one setup that that I use for everything, and I, I tend to sort of build my setup each year, thinking that I'm go going to hunt elk, and then I use it for for everything else. So I use a one pin sight that's a slider, so I can dial in my yardages. And a lot of people ask, they say, "Well, you know, have you ever been caught because an animal moved?" and the answer is very rarely, actually. It's happened to me a few times, but I often just feel like, well, if that happens, then the, the opportunity wasn't really meant to come together anyhow. Or, you know, um, I, I it, there's been instances where I've changed my aim just a little bit because I shoot enough that I have a general feeling of where things are. And, you you know, you kind of learn to judge yardage. I totally, I totally screw up on judging yardage like everybody else. But I try and have one one setup that I use for everything. Um, my experience, I've shot antelope with mechanicals. I've shot them with fixed blade heads. I've shot at them with mechanicals. I've shot at them with fixed blade heads. Um, and so, you know, I've experienced positive results with both. And so I tend to like you are on the side of, uh, any, anything that requires a little bit longer distance shooting. I, I like a lower profile broadhead, like a mechanical, because I'm going to have more of a, a true shot, less impact from wind at distance and whatever else. So, uh, I, I like that. And, you know, as you touched on, yeah, I, I feel like almost anywhere you hit a goat, they're going to have a reaction to and they're going to go and they're going to lay up. And, and if you need to do put a second shot on them, you know, you can, you can figure out a way to do that if you're patient and you give it time um, and you can see how far they, they've gone and, and do whatever. I, I rarely hear about people losing antelope. Maybe I don't talk to enough folks about that, but um, you know, in my experience, uh, my, I've been fortunate to put good shots on, on all the goats that I've shot. And that's not always common. For oh, me you made a else, right. But, you you made a devastating shot on the one on our hunt. I mean, you shot. Ah, uh, I, I think we talk about how I think it was seventy seven yards, and you were like over a barbed wire fence, and you like ah, you hit a little bit further back than you were you probably aimed. But I mean, at seventy seven yards, how can I fault you for a few inches? And the point is, I mean, I, dude. 
that thing he he like went up over a rise and piled up and and he was completely waylaid well i think one of the things that i've discovered about all game is like for me especially i have a longer shot sequence i have about a seven eight you know eight and a half seconds shot sequence because of the type of release i shoot and it's just just how i actuate a release and that type of thing so i need to draw and i need to draw early and when i first started hunting antelope that was one of the things i would do i would like i would have a goat let's say that was at a longer distance and they'd be looking at me and i'd be like okay as soon as they go broadside then i'll draw back and I, I, and then I'd be, I feel like I was rushed to make that shot. I probably had that seven or eight or nine seconds that I needed in order to, to execute a, a good shot. But, but mentally I was just redlining and melting down because I thought I needed to rush. So what I've realized is I need to draw back earlier than I think I do, even if I think it might compromise the opportunity. Um, and so, you know, if a goat is facing toward me, I'll draw back and I'll put my pin on their on their body like you know let's say i think they're going to turn left i'm going to put it on the front of their body and then i'm prepared for when they do turn to the left and give me that broadside shot and i've already started to preload that the, the trigger and ready to go and now i can take you know that that shot sequence and shorten it down a little bit or not feel that pressure of needing to get that arrow off so quickly that's going to create more of an opportunity to miss or or hit the animal in, in less than ideal spot. So going back to the hunt that we're talking about, when I initially I drew back twice on that goat, when I initially drew back on him, you know, he was even a little bit further than what I had what I had shot. And um, you know, I just I, I that's exactly how I felt. I felt myself, you know, redlining and and rushing the shot and sort of melting down. And I was like, no, I can't do that. I need to reset my mind. And I was willing to lose that opportunity in an effort to to gain the opportunity at making a good shot or better shot. And so as a result, I let down. I, I took just one second. I re I had enough time to even rearrange him. He was just walking. He was moving slowly, but. By the time I did shoot, he was, he was, you know, going to a point where I wasn't going to have an opportunity anymore, drew back, you know, he was slightly quartering away. I put the pin on him where I, where I wanted to, which was more towards his, you know, slightly back more towards the middle. And then when I shot, that's about where I hit him. Like you said, maybe about two inches back from where I was initially aiming. But, um, you know, he, he, it, it went in where in a good enough spot and it came out in a good enough, it came out through the the really good vitals, you know, heart and lung type area. And he didn't, he didn't go far at all, uh, overall, but, you know, I think again, my point is, you know, give yourself time and be patient and know, especially on these type of hunts that you're probably going to have another opportunity, you know, this probably not going to be the only one. So don't feel like you have to rush it. Don't punch that trigger. Cause especially if you're shooting at longer distances that are really, you know, nibbling on the edges of your comfort zone shooting wise. Cause Hey, you know, most guys aren't out shooting 90, hundred, 110 yards consistently. You know, at my house here, I can only shoot about 40 yards. And, um, so, and, and I don't even usually shoot that distance just because of the way things lay out. So I have to go, um, my neighbor owns a piece of land down the road. So I go to his, his place. It's about seven minutes from my house. And that's where I go and I do my distance shooting, but I can't do that every day. I can shoot at my house if I wanted to every day or every other day or whatever, put in a lot of shooting sessions, but they're at the shorter distances. So, um, I'm not always sort of accustomed to shooting those long distances. So, and then another thing that I do when I am preparing for a hunt like this, when it, when it relates to shooting is, um, whenever, whenever I do my cold shots, like the first ones, I, I start, I don't work my way up to long distance. I start at long distance. And that's something I started doing a few years ago. Cause I really felt like it, you know, I've started, I've struck like a lot of archers. I've struggled with target panic over the years or rushing the shot or doing whatever. It's all target panic, just different ways of expressing it in, in conversation. But I felt like if I started with those longer shots, it, it, it really made me like, sure up my mind and become a, a lot more focused on executing a good shot initially out of the gate that cold shot and then 
I'll do a few rounds at 90 or 80, 90, hundred, whatever. And, you know, I have like little tricks that I do uh, on, on odd days of the week. I'll shoot odd distances on even days, uh, excuse me, even days of the year, odd days of the year, I'll even days of the year, I'll shoot even distances. So 180, 60. And when I go to my neighbor's place and shoot, I only shoot long distance with the exception of my last round. Um, my, my very last round, I might shoot three arrows at like 30 yards and then that's it. Cause I, you know, that, that, and then I'm, I'm done. I'm usually kind of getting fatigued and I want to pack up my stuff and go home and hang out. But, you know, obviously shooting is a big component and you have to just operate where you're comfortable and, uh, you know, preparation in that regard is, is really what makes it so you're able to rise to the occasion, um, you know, which we're all not always great at doing myself included. Well, I mean, I think everything that you were just talking about is a great, it's a great place to end this episode because, you know, you were getting into, you know, a little bit of a deep dive on your thought process, on your, your preparation, your practice regimen for getting ready to, for the moment of truth out in the field, as well as, you know, what's going through your head when you actually are at full draw, you know, on an antelope or another animal. And obviously I, you shoot some kind of a hinge or tension release probably based on what you were saying. That's what I took from that anyway, um, which may not be applicable to everybody. But the point is, you know, if you listen to what Tim was just saying, okay, there's a lot of time and effort that goes in to getting ready. And if you start your season with an antelope hunt, Okay, you're going to be hunting in mid-August, late August, early September, whatever. Man, you're going to be way ahead of the game when it comes to your elk hunt or your mule deer hunt or your whitetail hunt, which is going to be later in the year because you're already going to have gone through all that preparation, the longer range practice, making sure all your equipment is dialed in you're going to be in good shape. It's a great way of kind of ending it where we started. It's a great way to start your season a little earlier, experience some different habitats, some different animals, uh, have an opportunity to do some sitting in a blind, do some spotting and stalking, do some decoying. These are all skills that directly transfer to other species that we hunt, and there's no substitute for experience in any walk of life, you know, people in all walks of life, all vocations and avocations say that the more time that you can spend in the field as a bow hunter, hunting different terrains, different animals, different shot distances, angles, etc., etc., you're going to be a better bow hunter. So not only are you going to have fun, but you're going to be a better bow hunter for it. And that, that's the way I feel about, especially hunts like our DIY pronghorn hunt because hey that was a week that we were out there doing everything for ourselves had some failures ultimately had you know two nice success stories with our goats and you know we definitely learned things that week that that make us better oh hands down we definitely learned and I mean, it was just to your point, it was just fun, you know, and that, that's the thing. It's just a good primer for, for other hunting. You know, you get some, hopefully meat in your freezer, you get, you get some, a skill tune up right out of the gate and, um, just get to have a different experience that just fills your head with memories. I kind of have this, these tenets that I, that I kind of live by when it comes to hunting now. And I got three basic objectives. I want to put memories in my head, meat in my freezer and bone on my wall. And no, no one has a higher priority over the other. And this is just another chance to do that. And it's another chance to get more experiences and, you know, just do things that are different. And, you know, I think all hunters and bow hunters should try and experience as many things as, as they possibly can. If they're from the West, come hunt whitetails. If you're from the East, go out West and hunt, you know, those game species and whatever else, and just, you know, get those experiences because life is short and uh, you want to capture as many opportunities as you can. Oh yeah. And you know what? I'm kind of going to say this to close us because 
you're not hunting antelope this year. I'm not hunting antelope. I don't know what your first, first hunt is. Mine's going to be Labor Day weekend, opening early season in Kentucky for velvet whitetails. What's your first, by the way? Uh, elk in Idaho. Okay. September 10th, I think we leave. Gotcha. But anyway, long story short, we're not hunting antelope this year. This conversation got me excited to hunt antelope again. I think 2023, Timmy, we need to get something on the calendar. Maybe we hook up with that other crazy guy that you mentioned, Jay Spouserman. Maybe we get out there and chase some DIY goats in, in Colorado or you know somewhere else in that part of the world next August. So that would be fun. I'm game. Well, listen, man, I appreciate you. I appreciate your friendship. Uh, appreciate the uh, opportunity to work with someone uh, really good like yourself, you know, here in the industry. And I look forward to hearing about some neat memories and bone that you are going to collect uh, here this fall, buddy. Thanks, man. You too. Thanks for downloading the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine on your local newsstand or connect with us online at bowhuntingmag.com.